Give it up for my brother this morning. Yes. Check. Jeez. After that introduction, it's going to make, me, make it really hard for me to talk bad about you today. <laughs> it's been a real joy to be here um, uh -oh. this morning. Is that typical? Sorry. Um, you guys have an, you have an awesome church. I hope you know that. Um, you know, just full of people who it's very obvious you guys love Jesus, right? Which is the most important thing. Um, focus on Jesus. I was in the prayer room this morning and heard a lot of good words that were given. Um, I think some, a lot of them line up in my message. And it's funny because I'm sitting there praying. My brother comes down and he comes in and he sits right next to me. And I don't, I don't know who Dallas is, but I want you guys to know they're covered in prayer. Covered in prayer. I heard a lot of that this morning. So um, whoever Dallas is, um, let me know. Thanks, thanks. I want to share a message with you, with you this morning, and if I had a title this message, it would be The Bitter End of Bitterness. And we're going to look at the story of, of David some, but really the focus is on this kind of obscure character named Ahithophel in Scripture. And there's a lot of Scripture reading here, so I would please ask you to bear with me as we get through it all, but I think if we pay attention... And listen to the story of Ahithophel's life. There's some valuable lessons we're going to learn this morning about bitterness. So, if you will, turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 15. I'm going to read through the scripture. We'll pray, and then we'll begin. It says this, and, and you'll have to apologize just to give you advance warning. I'll be, I'll be jumping around a little bit, but I'll tell you when. Verse 1, it says, after this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? And he would say, when he, when he said, your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right. But there's no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with the dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hands and take hold of him and kiss him. And thus Absalom did in all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay a vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived in Geshur in Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. And with Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests. And they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor from the city of Gilo. 
And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, let us flee, or else there will be no escape from us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly, and bring down ruin on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. Verse 31. And it was told to David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. While David was coming to the summit, where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai the archite came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. And David said to him, If you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past, so now I will be your servant, then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. Chapter 16, verse 15. Now Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem, and Ahithophel with him. And then Hushai the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom. Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king, long live the king. And Absalom said to Hushai, Is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, No, for whom the Lord and his people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be, and with him I will remain. And again, whom should I serve? Should it not be his son? As I have served your father, so I will serve you. Then Absalom said to Hithophel, Give your counsel. What shall we do? And Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, whom he, has ki- who, whom he has left to keep the house. And all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father. And the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof. And Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if, as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed, both by David and by Absalom. Verse, or chapter 17, verse 1 through 5. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Let me choose 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic. And all the people who are with him will flee, and I will strike down only the king, and I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes to her husband. You seek the life of only one man, and all the people will be at peace. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Then Absalom said, call Hushai the the archai also, and let us hear what he has to say. Verse 14. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel, so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. Verse 23. And when Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled up his donkey, went off home to his own city, he set his house in order, and hanged himself. And he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you this morning, 
May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, Jesus. May your spirit be among us, Father, as we look at the life and the death of Ahithophel. May your spirit move in our hearts that we might take in the lessons that we are to learn this morning, Jesus. May your spirit be digging in our hearts, Father, to pull out any roots of bitterness that may be there to cause destruction upon our life, Lord. May your spirit help us not only hear your word, but apply it to our life as we leave here this morning, Lord. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. If a person were to read these chapters, verses, uh, chapters 15 through 17, just at face value, they might come to two separate conclusions. One would be that Ahithophel, this man, is the sorest loser in the history of mankind, right? <laughs> I mean, his advice isn't followed. Before the battle is won or lost, he goes to his hometown and he just hangs himself, right? The second thing, when you, when you, if you know that David and Ahithophel were very close friends, very close, then you would think that Ahithophel was perhaps the most greedy, power-hungry traitor in the history of, I don't know where they're at in history exactly, but, um, you know, he's on par with anybody in Scripture, right? As far as being a traitor against one of his best friends in Israel, King David. But if you were to come to either of those conclusions by reading this at surface level, not only would we be wrong, but we'd miss out on the valuable lesson that God would have us learn from his life. The background to this story is that King David is currently king of Israel. He's been king for 24 years now. He's already combined the southern, the northern kingdoms. He's ruling in the city of Jerusalem. And you have a son, Absalom, and he is truly just a dog of a man, as deceitful as could be. I mean, he literally, when he comes into Jerusalem here, he, he just got done serving a four-year exile for killing his brother, right? It's one thing to think about killing your brother. I can relate to that to some degree. But <laughs> to kill your brother is a totally different thing, right? He killed his brother. He gets back. David is actually glad to have him back. He, he feels like he needs to restore that relationship with Absalom. But as soon as Absalom gets back into the, to the city, he shows appreciation to David by being incredibly deceitful. And people would come to the city, and they would hang out at the gate, and there would be Absalom early in the morning. And the gate was where all the powerful and influential people hung out. And he would come, and he'd say, hey, let me hear, let me hear your cause. Where are you from? He would make small talk with them. Oh, man. Your cause is good. Your cause is righteous. But it's just sad that the king doesn't have time for you right now. And he's so inconsiderate, he doesn't even appoint an official to hear your case. But the scripture tells us, he says this, If only I were made judge in the land, and everyone who has suit or cause would come to me, then I would give him justice. And I'm sure he would kiss their kids, you know, just picture the typical politician, right? And Absalom, he may be deceitful, he may be wicked, but he's persistent because he did this for four long years. He did this. And it tells us in Scripture that Absalom stole the hearts from the people of Israel. And at the end of four years, he tells his father, King David, I want to go to Hebron. 
Because when I was in exile, I made a vow to the Lord. And he uses, he has a very calculated use of God, right? And if you know a parent's heart, if you know if you're a parent who loves the Lord, what's one thing you want your child to do? Love the Lord, right? And so if your child comes to you and says, I made a vow to God and I need to go fulfill it, what are you doing? Yeah, David is probably happy. He probably thought you came a long ways in the eight years you've been gone, son, from that incident so long ago. Go, make your vow in Hebron. And he takes 200 innocent men with him. Then he sends spies throughout the land of Israel, and he gets word because he's already stolen the hearts. And he says, when this trumpet blows, everybody's going to declare that I am king and the coup will start, right? He's going to overthrow David. The Bible tells us that Ahithophel joins Absalom in his rebellion. And so when the trumpet sounds and people begin, begin to cry out, Absalom is king, new, king, news gets back to David very quickly. And if you were a leader back then or a king, and really even today when you look at some of the modern coups that have taken place, and you get news that it has started, the first thing you do is you pack up your stuff and take all your people with you and you get out of town because you know the number one thing they're going to do is kill you, right? And then their place is established. So David, he, he gets everybody together. He leaves. He leaves behind 10 concubines to take care of the house because he believes he will come back to that house. Now David left them behind because every civilization throughout time has had their rules of war, right? We even have our rules of war today if there are rules, right? But you try to respect some. And, and his concubines during that time would have been completely off limits. No way would he have imagined what Absalom would have done to them. So David leaves with his weeping mass of people, very afraid for their lives. And when he hears that Ahithophel is with Absalom, what is the first thing David does? He prays. He says, O oh Lord, I pray, turn the counsel of Ahithophel to foolishness because he knows how good Ahithophel's counsel is. And Hushai, the other trusted counselor, David sent back to be with them. He's David's inside guy. He's the double agent. And, it's, and Absalom comes into Jerusalem, and, and this is super interesting to me. I don't know if you know somebody like this in your life. Have you ever met somebody who... They may crave power or they crave a position of authority, but the minute they get in it, they don't have any idea what to do with it. They, they, don't, have, they don't possess an ounce of character to fulfill that position. So Absalom gets there and he's like, well, pff, come on, counselors, right? What are we going to do? And he first calls the council of Ahithophel. And Ahithophel says, listen. Go into your father's concubines. I want you to break this rule of war. I want you on the rooftop, a public display, to go into your father's concubines and defile them. And the reason he gives is to strengthen the hand of the men who are with him because Ahithophel knows that the men are not loyal, fully loyal to Absalom yet. And what Ahithophel wants to do is create this situation where if he does something so horrible that if David gets power, he's going to kill everybody that was around. 
And so he wants these men to believe they were fighting for their lives because they're not going to fight out of loyalty to Absalom. I don't know if you ever heard of, uh, you ever heard the, the phrase, burn the boats? That comes from Hernan Cortez and in 1519. He arrived with 11 boats to take as much Aztec treasure as he can. Well, word started to spread, we can't do this. We want to get on the boats and go home. And so what does Cortez do? He burns the boats, all 11 of them. Why? Because now these men know they don't have a choice. They're going to fight for their life. And that's essentially what he's doing when he goes into these concubines. He's saying, hey, we're going to do something so bad that these guys have to be loyal to you. And Absalom listens, and he defiles the concubines on the roof. And then the second piece of advice Ahithophel says, let me choose 12,000 men, and I will go after David right now while he's tired, while he's weak, while his army's in disarray, and I'll, I'll hunt him down and kill him, and I'll bring the people back to serve you. Probably would have worked, really would have. It was probably the best military advice he, that could have been given was from Ahithophel. But then Hushai, David's inside guy, is called. And Hushai gives different advice. Opposite advice, go wonder, right? But what Hushai does is he manipulates Absalom's pride. And there's no easier thing to manipulate than somebody's pride. It's a pitfall, right? It's a trap. Happens all the time. And Hushai says, no, 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 no. David's men are men of valor. They're men of war. If you go against him in their disarray, against your disarray, your first, your first attack will fall, their morale will fall, and you will be crushed. And Ahithophel will get all the credit even if it does work. He says, what I want you to do is you be patient and you gather up all the men of Israel until they number as the sand. And then you lead them into battle and you'll get the glory for destroying David. And all Hushai's trying to do is buy David time. That's all he's trying to do. And Ahithophel knows better than to buy David time. And when Ahithophel sees that his second piece of advice isn't followed, he gets on his donkey, he leaves Jerusalem, he goes home, he puts his house in order, and he hangs himself. Why did he do that? It wasn't because he was a sore loser. It was because he knows enough. He's a smart, he's, the, he's probably the smartest dude around. He knows enough to know the minute that his second piece of advice wasn't followed and that Hushai is manipulating Absalom's pride, he, know, he already knows the outcome. And so he, he takes measures of what he's going to have to do eventually. Following Ahithophel's death, Absalom takes the armies into Israel, into battle against David. And before the battle is over, 20,000 young men will die in that battle. And David will be restored and he'll reign for a lot, many more years. But that is the end of the story of Ahithophel's life. But that is not the beginning of this story for Ahithophel. And the beginning of the story for Ahithophel is where we really learn the lesson of what he's going through and what he dealt with and what the outcome was. David and Ahithophel were very close throughout his entire reign. They, they most likely, in my opinion, they probably knew each other even in childhood, and they were like brothers. 
David writes in Psalm 55 of Ahithophel, and he says, for, if it, for it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from it. David doesn't even consider him an enemy. He says, but it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house, we walked in the throng. And David and Ahithophel, they were close, extremely close at one point. And during David's reign, he did not make a law. He did not make a judgment. He did not proclaim war. He did not negotiate a peace treaty until the council of Ahithophel was heard and received. He didn't. Because Ahithophel was the greatest political mind. He was the greatest strategist of his time. He is so smart, guys, that he is literally a proverb during the time. 2 Samuel literally says, Now in those days the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed. His gift was incredible. He was sensitive to God. He was used by God. He loved David. He loved Israel. And then the question becomes this. What could possibly happen between them to cause such treachery? To cause Ahithophel to be such a traitor and to become so bitter at David? And the answer is really simple when you, when you look closely at Scripture. Ahithophel had a son in the army of Israel. And his son had a daughter, the granddaughter of Ahithophel. And her name was? Bathsheba, Bathsheba. And most of you guys are familiar with the story, so I'll go over it really quick. One day, David was in the palace, and his men were at war. And David should have been at war with his men. And he knows he should, he should have been there with them. But one, literally one season, he says, I'm going to hang back at the palace. And when he's on the rooftop of the palace, he sees a woman bathing who is Bathsheba. He calls for her. And they commit adultery together. It's this secret, and he sends her back. But is adultery ever a secret? It's not a very, I don't know. I don't know. It doesn't have a good track record, if you ask me. I'm just saying. The word gets back to David, and what is it? I'm pregnant, David. And what does David do? He panics. And he says, call Uriah back here. Get Uriah back here from war. And his hope is that he will lie with his wife and that Uriah will think the child is his and not David's. And so he calls Uriah back from war. But Uriah is one of David's 37 mighty men, valiant men, a man of great character. And so when he gets back, he's like, what am I back here for? I'm not going home. I'm not going to experience the luxuries of home when my men and the Ark of the Covenant are out on the battlefield. I will not do it. He refuses to engage, and he sleeps with David's servants. He doesn't even go home, and David tries to get him drunk, and that fails. So then David sends a letter with Uriah back to Job. Uriah literally carries his own death sentence. And Job opens the letter and it says, bring Uriah to the front lines and pull back everybody else that Uriah will be murdered. And that's what happens. Guys, can you 
imagine Ahithophel for one second? Can you imagine in a matter of a few weeks, your best friend, your king, the person you built this kingdom with, has committed adultery with your granddaughter, has killed your grandson, and now she is living in the palace with who you thought was your friend? Can you imagine your life crumbling in just a few weeks? I want you to take a moment this morning and really ask yourself, think of something specific to you. What has happened in your life where you felt like your life was crumbling? Where you felt like somebody wronged you to the greatest degree they could wrong you? Where a seed of bitterness was planted in your heart? Have you ever had something like that happen to you? Because as we continue with this story, you need to understand the two different outcomes and how you deal with this bitterness in your life is going to matter. You can either experience the bitter death of bitterness or not. So Ahithophel, he takes his things after that happened, after the adultery happens, okay? He takes his things, he packs them up, and he, re he just goes home. He's done with David. He goes back to the city of Gilo, okay? For approximately 10 years, he's there. And he is, for these 10 years, he is just a smoldering mass of bitterness and vengeance. Now, here is the issue. When he is there for 10 years, do you know what he doesn't know? What God is doing in the life of David. He doesn't know it. He doesn't know that God is dealing with David. He doesn't know that David's going to be dealing with consequences in his, for the rest of his life. Natural consequences that are incredibly severe. He doesn't know that God sent Nathan the prophet to go to David and to rebuke him. Let's read what Nathan said to David when he came to him. He said, God sends Nathan the prophet, he says, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would add you as much more. And then he says in verse 9, Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? When you understand the heart of David, and I fully believe this, I think David would have rather died a thousand times than hear those words from the Lord. And he pays tremendous consequences. And the Lord stops just short of killing him. And that might have been mercy towards him. But guess who doesn't understand any of that? Ahithophel. Because he's back in Gilo and he just wants vengeance. And what he doesn't understand is that ten years later, when he goes against David, he's not just going against David anymore, is he? He's going against God. And it doesn't go well for him. So when he receives that call 10 years later, he joins Absalom. And the counsel of Ahithophel was militarily perfect, wasn't it? It was perfect. But God. That's the, those are the two best words you could ever hear, right? But God. And you can literally be the smartest man in the world. And maybe Ahithophel was the smartest man in the world. But guess what you're not going to do? You're not going to outsmart God. 
You'll never do it. But God. And by the end of all of this, Ahithophel will be dead, Absalom will be dead, and 20,000 young men will be dead. And it is the bitter end of bitterness, which guess what that produces? More bitterness. Because I'm, I'm, I want to communicate this so clearly to you today. That the only thing bitterness is capable of producing in your life is more bitterness. It is incapable of producing anything else. And you look, I mean, I understand, like, listen, when you think about what happened to you, I mean, to a certain degree, some people look at this and they're like, what the heck? I understand Ahithophel. I understand his bitterness. I understand what happened to him was life-altering evil and treachery. I understand him more than I understand David. I think I can be the, the, the mentality sometimes. But you have to understand this. The only thing that his bitterness did was make him a thousand times the murderer David ever was. It did. The only thing he ever did was reproduce more Ahithophel's 10,000, 20,000, 80,000 more. When you have mothers and fathers and grandmothers, and grandfathers, and brothers, and sisters of those 20,000 20, men who lost their life only because of his bitterness and because of Absalom's treachery? Do you know what that does in their hearts? Produces more bitterness. That's all it's capable of doing, which is why Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5 says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. The bitterness of a single individual is far-reaching, and it can corrupt any organization, any family, and any church body. And you have to be careful, so careful, not to allow a root of bitterness to come up in this church body, or anywhere else in your life. The question becomes, what do we do with it? What do I do with this bitterness that is inside of me? I'm going to tell you the solution, okay? It is to take the cross. And if you take that cross and you throw it into those bitter waters that are in your heart, I promise you they will become sweet again. When the people of, of Israel are leaving out of Egypt, which was a rather bitter experience, they cross the Red Sea, and they come to the land of Mara and the waters of Mara. And you know what? They're out of water. And they go to drink the waters of Mara, but the waters are bitter, it says. And they go to Moses, and Moses goes to God, and he says, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord says, I want you to take a tree. And I want you to throw it into the bitter waters of Mara, and I will make it sweet. And we learn elsewhere in Scripture that, that the tree references the cross. Now I want you to note that he did not pump out the water and put new water in. I think that's rather important. What it is saying is that he can take whatever situation you have as it exists, and he can start to turn it sweet. Right, you think about the cross, right? When you think about the cross, it reminds me of my sin. Have you ever lusted after a woman? Have you ever lusted after a man? 
If you have, what does the scripture say? You're no better than David. Have you ever hated somebody in your life before? I've hated so, somebody so bad I could kill them. I don't know if that's good to say from the pulpit or not, but if, you know, I've been in some situations. I'm telling you what that means to me is I am no better than David. I am a lot of things when compared to the perfection of God as the standard. And I take a moment and I think about what I've been forgiven of and what I deserve. And when I start to think about that, the waters get a little sweeter for me. And I take a minute and I think about what is in store for me, the, the majesty that is in store for me for all of eternity compared to what I deserve. And when I start dwelling on that stuff, instead of my bitterness, the waters get a little sweeter, don't they? And then I, I don't even just take the, the forgiveness element as one part of Scripture, right? So many times people share the gospel like, oh, you're forgiven, you know, your grace covers you, and you're going to heaven. That's just one part. The other part is what? The Holy Spirit comes upon us, and not only are we forgiven, but we have the empowerment to live a victorious life. And then all of a sudden, I can do things that I could never do on my own. And I allow the Holy Spirit to work. And he does things through me that I could never do on my own, including forgiveness. Forgiving things and, and, and looking past things that have happened to me and focusing on Jesus. That's all done through the power of the Holy Spirit. And when you allow him to work, things get what? A little sweeter, right? You throw the cross in it. And it's all about, you know, when you look at the grace of God, it's all about freedom. And I can tell you this, and I want you to know this today, if you have bitterness in your life, you do not have freedom. <laughs> there is no freedom in bitterness. Someone wrote this short story. It's called How to Be a Slave, and I really enjoy it. It says this. It says, how to be a slave, just hate somebody. And the moment you start hating a man, you become his slave. He controls your thoughts. He evades your dreams. He absorbs your creativity. He determines your appetite. He affects your digestions. He robs you of your peace of mind. You can't get away from a man you hate. He is with you awake or asleep. He invades your privacy when you eat. He influences the tone of your voice when you speak to your boss, your wife, your child. He requires you to take medicine for indigestion, headaches, loss of memory. He steals time and dissipates energy. You want to be a slave, find somebody and hate them. So you would do. What I'm here to tell you guys is that if running it through your mind a thousand times would solve it, it would be solved by now. If hating somebody as much as you could hate them would solve your bitterness, it would be solved by now. If dwelling on somebody and doing nothing but hope for their destruction and failure in life because of what was done to you would solve it, it would be solved by now. But none of that works. It does not work. The only thing that works is for you to take that cross and you throw that in your bitterness and you allow it to work and that is the only thing I am telling you that will set you free from things that have happened to you. So the choice is yours. We'll end here, okay? The choice is yours. We know that hurt people do what? They hurt people, right? And you can be hurt 
and you can reproduce bitterness tenfold, a hundredfold, whatever it is. But you know what else we know? We know that healed people heal people. Healed people heal people. Or you can choose to be healed and you can reproduce that ten thousand, a hundred, a thousandfold, whatever it is. That's our choice we're here to make tonight. Do not become a slave to bitterness. Put the cross in your life that those waters may be sweet. Let's pray, and then we'll close with a song. Father, we come before you this morning, Lord, and I just ask, Father, for all of us to be transparent before you this morning, Lord, to really, really allow your spirit to search our hearts, Father, and that any root of bitterness will be dug up, Father, and will be tossed into the fire by your power, by your spirit. If we can't do it alone, please help us do it, Jesus, that we can be a restorer, that we can be a healer to other people and not spread the disease, Lord. I just pray, Father, that as we leave here this morning and we enter into your mission field, that is, that is exactly how we will view, view it, Father. And we will see people how you see people. And we will hear people how you hear people. And we will be obedient to whatever it is you call us to do. We pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen. amen. Let's go ahead and stand this morning. We will close with one last song. And if you need prayer, we'll have people up here to pray for you. When I thought I'd lost me.